Um, this is Tanya class. That's what I normally do. But I'm not telling you about Tishrei. Um, the way this class works is that I start at the beginning of Tanya and I keep going, regardless of who the students are. So we're now going to start chapter 20. Which, what? I don't know if anything that happens is con- my life is considered normal, but okay. <laughs> All right, so we're going to be starting chapter 20. Now, normally what I do at the beginning, um, when there are people who haven't been here, is I give some introductory... Remarks, I guess they could be called. Um, sometimes that could be a whole class. Sometimes that could be two classes. Sometimes it could be half a class. Kind of depends on my mood, who the students are, etc., etc., etc. So we're going to start with the introductory stuff. Um, before I do that, I should mention that all of the Tanya classes, to my knowledge, for the first 19 chapters are on the um, my note. Spotify, SoundCloud, whatever it is. So if it really is important to you to know everything that was said in the first class in the first 19 chapters, they are available. But that's a lot of hours to listen to, I think. All right. So we are going to be covering in this introduction, we'll see how far we get, we're going to be covering a few things. Number one, we're going to be doing a very brief overview, very, very brief, of what is Hasidus. The reason to do that is so we can understand what it means that the Tanya is a work of Chassidus, and specifically in the realm of Chassidus, what is special about the Tanya. Then after that, we're going to have a summary of the first 19 chapters of Tanya and where we are currently holding in the Tanya, so that we can study chapter 20 with some context. Make sense? Context is important. That's like the main theme of this week's Parsha, right? Mm-hmm. Context, right? It's also a terrible word on social media. Yeah. Context? When they give context to the situation. I don't know. Not on social media. <laughs> 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 let, me, let, me, let, me, let me just say, you have two choices in life. You can be on social media or you can be healthy mm-hmm. mentally. You can choose. Yeah. You can choose. <laughs> All right. So, Hasidus, we, we spoke of this a little bit when we did the classes on Tishrei. Oh, I forgot to tell you, my phone is going to be on, and I should just do it here. And I apologize in advance, but um, if um, my wife or my son or my brother um, call me, I'm picking up the phone. Uh, my brother is somewhere, I do not know exactly where, but he's, he's, a, he's a reservist in the combat unit. Mm. And um, my wife is home in Beitar, and my son is also in Beitar. I don't know. So they both have phones. So normally it's not nice to keep your phone on during class, but I think you'd understand. Mm. And that means that sometimes people are going to just send me messages and things that are not relevant. I have to look just to see. I apologize. Okay. So Hasidus, um is a different approach to Judaism 
Now, we have to be very careful about this idea because Judaism is the Torah that was given to us um, by God through Moses at Mount Sinai after the Jews left Egypt on their way to the Promised Land. That is what Judaism is. And anything that is a faithful um, continuation of that is Judaism. And anything that is a departure of that is not Judaism. So it, it, it's difficult to say there can be a new approach to Judaism. Um, the way that Hasidus explains itself is that um, Hasidus is like light. When you shine light into a room, you don't add anything new in the room. The same objects that were there are still there. However, now you are able to see them. Um, so the idea is that the same covenant that we have with Hashem, the same Torah, the same mitzvahs, the same rules, the same obligations, all those things, nothing of that is changed. Um, it's just that Chassidus puts it in a new light where we, can, where we can now see a greater depth, a greater beauty of what it's really all about. Okay? Um, which leads to an important point that I'm going to mention. It's not really, really entirely relevant to this class in particular, but it's something that I've encountered, unfortunately, recently several times. Um, so I'm going to say it here as well. Um, there is no such thing as disregarding halacha or Jewish law because of Hasidic whatevers, okay? Because Hasidus is just shining light onto the depth of Judaism. And so the idea that if, according to Jewish law, one should be doing X, Y, and Z, that because of Hasidus, will we just ignore that or do something different? Um, this, is, this is not Judaism, this is not okay. Um, Halach is dynamic. Halach is not as black and white as people think. There's often much room for flexibility. But to simply disregard Jewish law because they're inspired by some spiritual idea in Hasidus um, is the opposite of what Hasidus is about. So, public service announcement over. Now, what is, the, what is this new light? So there are two ways of putting it. One way of putting it is that it is a focus on the soul. The other way is that it's a focus on God. Um, and combine those, and it's a focus on the soul's relationship with God. So to put this in um, a little bit of perspective, prior to the revelations of the Baal Shem Tov, it's not that there was necessarily one universal way of relating to Judaism, but there was a basic idea that God is the creator of the world. We live in this world. We have a special covenant with God. And that's more or less defines our religion. And the main part of our religion is that we obey God, we worship God, we don't worship any other gods, we don't believe in any other gods. And if we do all of those things properly, then the part of us that lives on after death, called the soul, will be rewarded. That's an oversimplification, but that's more or less the idea. Hasidus shifts the emphasis that A, the fact that God is the creator of the world is not the main point of God. In other words, God's significance to us as Jews is not that he is the creator of the world. God's significance is... is um, his own significance. So to put that in very simple, um, a very simple way of putting that, 
many people are important to us because of the role they play in our life. The most important people to us are hopefully important to us not because of the role they play. They themselves are important to us. And the idea of Hasidus is that um, God alone, God himself is important to us, is worthy of our devotion. Nothing to do with the fact that he creates the world. Nothing to the fact that, that um, he runs the world. And to recognize that and to live our Judaism as a kind of relationship with God where the world is simply the place where that plays out. But the world does not really, not really have any significance in its own right. That's one shift. And the other shift is that the core of the Jew is that part of them which is able to relate to God that way, which senses things that way, which lives that way. And that's what we call the soul. Okay. Um, and what this means is that a Hasidic Judaism and a non-Hasidic Judaism are going to look superficially in terms of the practice the same, um, or most entirely saying there's, you know, customs, variations from here to there, but basically the same, because it's all within the framework of halacha. But the feel is going to be very different, okay? Um, so what are they for? I, I'm gonna, so I'm going to just, just illustrate this with an actual exchange I had with someone recently. A friendly exchange of a friend of mine who, who is not of the Hasidic persuasion. Um, and we were discussing something and he said something that would just never come out of someone who, who Hasidic is the way they would approach Judaism's mouth. They would just never say this. Um, we, were, we were discussing something and... Um, I said, uh, you know, you know, if you do whatever X, Y, and Z is, but you know, you don't accomplish the thing, then then like there's something very important missing. And he says that's true, but you still get the schar, you still get the reward. Now, to put that in in, in context, so imagine imagine you're trying to. Um, spend time with a very close friend, right? And in the end, the plans don't work out and you're not able to meet up, right? Would you comfort yourself by saying, well, at least you're going to get rewarded for the effort you put in? You wouldn't think in those terms, right? right? So it's a shift in flavor. It's a shift in focus, okay? Um, and Hasidus is a whole world. It's a whole range. Now, the way Hasidus was originally um, shared was experientially. In other words, one of the key ideas of Hasidus is that you have someone called a Rebbe or a Tzaddik or a holy man. Um, and their job is to make the soul more vibrant and more felt within the life of the person. The first person who did this was the Baal Shemtov. He's the founder of Hasidus and he trained um, his disciples to do that and their disciples to do that. And so the idea of studying Hasidus or learning Hasidus was actually not originally a thing. What it was is that the tzaddik was somehow able to use his connection with you and your connection with him that to, to wake up your soul, to charge your soul. And there's all sorts of interesting stories about these types of things. Um, and that would change the experience, the feel of your life, your feel of, of Judaism. So... Um, just to, to, to give an analogy that Baal Shem Tov said, um, he said, how people ask how come Hasidim are always happy? 
And he said, if you were if a deaf person were going to a wedding hall, and they right, and they would and they, and they never knew about this thing called music, right? They think <coughs> a bunch of crazy people, right? Why is everyone jumping up and down like lunatics? But once you hear the music, right, it, 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 everything changes, right? So if you have this sense of God that only the soul really allows you to have, right? So then there's just the overwhelming positivity of life, the positivity of every aspect of Judaism which permeates our lives is something that you feel and it brings a certain joy, a certain rhythm, a certain beauty to life, okay? Um, and this does, this did change a lot of things. So one of the things in the early years of the Hasidic movement was that the idea of traveling to a Rebbe, traveling to a Tzadik became a very big deal. Um, there was one of the Balshemto's great disciples, name was Rabbi, um, Yaakov Yosef of Pol- Polonia, or Polonia, known as the Toldos, because of a book he wrote called the Toldos Yaakov Yosef, which is a collection of teachings that he heard from the Balshemtov. Um, and his, you know, as he understood, them. Uh, he, he at one point he, he was the presumed successor of the Balshemtov before a different disciple become, joined the group. The Magad Mizrachu ended up taking up becoming the, the successor. So he wrote um, in one of his, he wrote in one of his, uh, in, one of, in, in one section of his book that there's people object to this idea of traveling to the tzaddik because you know, nowadays you can just hop on a plane, it's not a big deal, but in the back of the day, traveling could take you know, days, weeks, sometimes for longer. And you know, when you're traveling, you're not studying Torah to the same degree that you would be able to otherwise. And the, um, at least when it comes to men, there's a great prohibition of neglecting Torah study, both quantitatively and qualitatively. So it's one thing if you need to study more Torah and you need to go to your teacher to gain knowledge, to gain um, direction in how, to, in how to understand Torah better. But if that's not what's happening, and certainly if you could find somebody who's capable of doing that closer to you, it doesn't make sense to travel for weeks on end to some holy man. And that doesn't seem to be a, an appropriately Jewish thing to do. And um, he explained um, this, that this is, perfectly, this is perfectly legitimate based on interpreting a Mishnah in a non-literal manner. So the Mishnah tells us that we, we cease Torah study in order to remove the dead, meaning to accompany them in the burial, right? If, someone, if the dead are being escorted to, to the burial, right? To accompany them, to remove the dead. Um, and also to bring in the bride, which means the idea of a bridal procession, of a bride going to her wedding. That these mitzvahs of escorting the dead to their final resting place um, until the resurrection, escorting the bride to the, to the chuppah, these mitzvahs are more important than the study of Torah. And so he says, so if you're traveling to remove the death within yourself and to bring the divine presence, which is compared to the bride, then you're allowed to neglect Torah study. Okay. Now, what his point is, and, and he, he now, the, he was being, um, he was, the, the, there's different levels of learning Torah. So this is what's called a, a non-literal interpretation. Um, but there is an idea, in the, in, there's an idea that you're allowed to neglect Torah study for your genuine needs. And if it's a genuine need, so if you're allowed to not study Torah in order to go to work, you're allowed not to in order to, you know, to achieve those things that are very, very important in one's spiritual life. But the point was that it was already understood that what's happening is something that's much more subjective, much more internal, much more ethereal, that cannot really be articulated clearly from one person to another. That there's a kind of sense of God that we are lacking 
and to, to remove the obstacles that, to reclaim that, right, to bring the soul back to life, that's what the encounter with the tzaddik is supposed to do. And that's really what Hasidus is. Now, so most Hasidic books are simply collections of sayings. And the best way to think of them is to think of a family photograph. Um, if you were to give me your family photographs, um, I could flip through the photographs in about five minutes and be done, right? But if they're your family photographs, right, you can stop and look at them for a long time. Why? Because you have memories behind them. They memories, right? They evoke things within you. And the idea is that these collections of Hasidic sayings were supposed to evoke things in people who had a sensitivity and a relationship with the tzaddik. They weren't really books that were meant to be studied in the traditional sense where we study Talmud and the like. Um, and in fact, in many Hasidic communities, that is still the sense that, that the notion of studying Hasidic as a serious kind of scholarly work is like not considered a real thing to do. Um, not that these books could not be studied. They're, they're full of wisdom. Um, but that wasn't really how they were intended. And they're often just kind of collections of sayings. And, we do. We have them. Now, these are, these are, he didn't write these down. These are collections. Right. Okay. In fact, today's Chita starts explaining, the Altebis starts explaining one. Okay. All right. Okay. The Balshemtov said, it says, and there was evening and there was morning one day. Okay. Because Aaron, through his falsehood, made peace. So too, an expert, uh, expert healer through... What? One second. So too, an expert healer through poisons is able to use them in order to revive the souls. And this is... And this is um, And this, is, and this is what it means the Talmud, um, can a deaf mute speak righteousness? So I don't know, that means something to you? <laughs> if a deaf mute speaks righteousness. I don't know. Okay. The Baal Shem Tov said one needs to pray for their enemies because they are the spirit of the righteous that has been reincarnated. And through the prayers, they will be healed in their source. And this is referring to Jewish enemies. Um, actually, maybe it's not. Actually, yeah. No, actually, no, it's not talking about Jewish enemies. And, through, and, through, and, and then when their source is healed, the spirit will leave and the enemies will be destroyed instantly. Not exactly sure what that means either. No, no. Okay. Um, okay. When a person knows the afflictions of their heart and that they are sick in their soul in the, in the, in the spiritual state of smallness, since they have this knowledge, they're sweetened through this knowledge and this is their healing. As opposed to when one is in a spiritual state of concealment, as the verse says, and I will surely hide my face, and one does not know that they are spiritually sick, 
Um, then there is no then there is no healing from this. Right. So this, I mean, seems to be like some of them are easier to understand, but then you also think like, what's the big deal? It's not like a new idea. Anyway. So they're all like short, they're not like long. Ones. There's longer ones. There's ones that make up that whole page. Nothing like. Uh, this is a famous one. What person is where their thoughts are. In this Paul Shanto's teaching. Okay. All right. A person needs to know how to be arrogant without being arrogant, angry without being angry. So too with all character traits. A person needs to behold all character traits for God has both judgment and compassion. So we have to know how to do all the things not. We have to know how to do them without being them. Mm-hmm. Conduct yourself with angry without... <laughs> this is what happened. That's so okay. yeah. So um, anyway... And whatever, so like other Hasidic groups, they, they, they might have like made these things longer, but the idea of really studying it and really, because studying, it, studying means you're asking questions. Does it make sense? If it doesn't make sense, how, how can we make it make sense, right? Um, to use an analogy, how do you analyze it? How do you break it down, put it back together? The Baal Shem Tov had a disciple who took over the Hasidic movement after his passing, named the Magad of Mizrich. He had 120 disciples. When he passed, the movement split and it was decided they were going to divide Eastern Europe and every tzaddik would kind of get a territory and they would spread the Hasidic um, approach as they saw fit based on the local culture, geography, climate, etc. The Alter Rebbe got the area we would now know as um, White Russia um, and parts of Lithuania and Ukraine. Um, and he started, and it's slowly, so if you actually look at his earlier Hasidic teachings, they sound very similar to his teachers, the Magid, who sound like a little bit more developed than the Alt Baal Shem Tovs. Um, but over time, they become more and more elaborate, and they become more, um, they become more conceptual. He starts using more philosophical language. He starts using a lot more Kabbalah. Keep in mind that Kabbalah was something that was known to, to great Torah scholars at the time. So he's using the Kabbalah to explain the Hasidus, not the other way around. Very often his discourses, when they didn't understand, he would give an explanatory discourse using more Kabbalah. Mm. Um, he started using a lot more of analogies from the natural world and specifically the human psyche and human relationships. Um, and this became very controversial because the Alter Rebbe developed an approach that rather than the tzaddik awaken the person's soul, the tzaddik would empower the person to awaken and maintain their soul on their own. Um, which meant um, that you were giving the person a tremendous amount of autonomy in, their, in the Hasidic thing, which, which really was something that didn't exist so much in the Hasidic world. The idea is if that if the main part of your life is your soul and the soul is awakened by the tzaddik, the most important thing you can do is to submit yourself to the tzaddik. And the idea that now you understanding and how you make sense of things is someone going to play a role, um, that seems to open up a space for, for arrogance, for self-absorption, which, goes, which closes one off to the soul. And this is very controversial. So is his point eventually not needed for Rebbe? No, no. His point, his point is that a Rebbe can come in different ways. 
His point was that if the, if the Rebbe's power comes to the person through this kind of encounter and awakens them, then it might be very powerful, but it's not as deep. And when the Rebbe invests his whole being in his teachings and his guidance, then the soul of the Rebbe kind of embodies, becomes embodied in the soul of the follower, the same way the soul is embodied in the physical body. So it's not, it's, so rather than it being like you don't need the Rebbe, it's that you, you, you become more united by becoming more independent. Um, and this was very controversial and the Hasidic world basically split. The people thought the Alter Rebbe was doing a great thing and liked it and their followers became known as Chabad Hasidim. Chabad means intellectual. And people didn't like it. And then there was a group of people who thought it was the right thing to do, but not for them. Um, and at a certain point, the Alter Rebbe felt that he needed to write a book, um, not a collection of teachings, but a book because it was just not, it wasn't feasible to actually give guidance to each person individually. And so this is really the only Hasidic work from the early generations of Hasidic, which is an actual manual of Hasidus. So even the other Chabad works, which are, are still have that format of, 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 of being collections of things. Now, they're collections of you know, discourses, like a book of essays rather than a book of sayings. Um, and they're much more, they're things that can be studied. But if you open up a book of Hasidic discourses, it, you know, they're arranged by the weekly Torah reading or something like that. Um, when the Alter wrote the Tanya, he wrote the Tanya with the goal of educating a person so that they can understand what it means that they have a soul, how they can serve God by awakening that soul, maintaining that soul. Um, and the Alter saw the Tanya as relative to the entire breadth of what Hasidus has to offer, kind of the way the Chumash the five books of Moshe are to the rest of the Torah. That in some sense, everything can be found there. Some things are more explicit, some things are less explicit. Um, and the, it really is a very unique book. Um, there's one, actually there's two things I should tell you about learning Tanya. Number one, Unlike most books, the Alter Rebbe does not try to persuade people, not to persuade them emotionally, not to persuade them intellectually. He simply explains. So if you want to, if you want to, the best analogy of this is imagine you go to a place you've never been before and you hire a tour guide to tour, give you a tour, but a really professional tour guide, right? The tour guide is not there to convince you that they're right, right? The presumption, why did you hire the tour guide? Because you think the tour guide knows what they're talking about, right? And the tour guide starts explaining things to you, right? And things that are more complicated, the tour guide explain more. Some things are simple, explain less, okay? Um, and the other thing about Tanya is that the Alter Rebbe is not trying to... He's not trying to make people feel good. He tells people the truth. Um, and, and this has led to a kind of... Uh, some people might have a certain positive view, there's a negative view of this, but that there's a kind of brutal honesty in Tanya. Now, that brutal honesty works both ways, okay? But he, in other words, the altruist's goal is that he believes in the person. He believes that the person being informed and knowledgeable is a good thing. 
and that therefore you shouldn't hide things from people. Now he does say that, that you can't just throw a book at people and expect them to know what to do with it, right? That the book is meant to be together with guidance. And the Alter set up a, a system of, of living mentors, people who had already received personal guidance. Um, and so the idea is that time is supposed to be learned with someone who has learned it themselves and is trying to live it themselves, and so they can share experience, right? That there's a kind of an oral component along with it. Um, but the idea is that it, it really is not, you know, one idea here and one idea there, you know, what's the deeper meaning of Rosh Hashanah or like what are mitzvahs all about, but it's, it's, it's kind of prevent, creating a, a comprehensive view of everything, very systematically with a focus on your actual service of God that you're in control over. So it's not really a book of philosophy. It's much more like a manual, even though there's a lot of philosophy in it. Now, because the Tanya has this uniqueness, that's the reason why um, we're learning it. As we, we learn Chassidus in the morning, I'm assuming, yes? Okay. Mm-hmm. And Chassidus in the morning, you're like, you learn a mimer, Chassidic discourse, right? Which, mm-hmm. you know, relates to something and it's a nice idea, and, right? Um, but what's that word? Context? There's like a larger context for that idea. And that larger context is found in the Tanya. Okay. So in Tanya, you learn um, what is a soul? What is it reasonable to expect of yourself? What is unreasonable to expect of yourself? You know, what, what is the truth of what, of what it is to do a mitzvah? What does it mean to eat? Everything gets redefined and re-examined and put in a different perspective with, again, that focus on that you are supposed to be able to awaken and maintain a sense of your soul through your own efforts. Okay. Now we're going to do a summary of 19 chapters of Tanya. Good? Unless there are any questions. Okay. The Tanya is centered around a verse from the Torah, which means this thing is very near to you in your mouth and your heart to do it. Yes? You don't have to answer now, but what's the idea of saying Tanya? Um, there are certain um, works that there's a sanctity in the letters, not just in the ideas. And Tanya is one of those works. The altar actually at one point spent six weeks deliberating whether to write an above, which is and between two words. Um, so certain works, um, there's a so that's true about the Tanakh, it's true about Zohar, it's true about um, Mishnah, it's true about Zohar. Tanya, that there's a sanctity in the letters themselves. Sometimes that has a lack of consequences, like in the, um, and so there's an idea that, for instance, there's a custom to read Zohar if you don't understand what it means, because the words themselves have a holiness to them. There's an idea of saying, right? And there are other things where it's not the case, like when it comes to Talmud, the idea is like, the idea is learning the ideas by heart. Like if you know word for word, that's great. I mean, it helps you can maybe understand, but there's an idea of like, and a similar thing with Hasidic discourses. There's never a tradition of learning the Hasidic discourses word for word verbatim. Um, you know, if you can do that and it helps you understand them better, great. But that wasn't like a, a thing. Um, the idea of letters themselves being holy is a, is a topic that actually is discussed in time. But for another time. Okay. So 
there's a verse that says, which means this matter is very close to you, very near to you, in your mouth and in your heart to do it. And the matter being discussed, according to many commentators, is the entirety of the Torah. So the entirety of Torah is very close to you. What does it mean that something is close to you? Anyone want to venture a guess? Within what you your soul? No. Context helps, by the way. Um, the previous verses say that it's not on the other side of the sea. It's not in the heavens. Those places are far away. What would happen if something is in the other side? It's within your reach. Right? Close means within your reach. If you have to send someone to go get it for you, right? No. It means within your reach. Makif is also something that's in your reach. Oh, it's within our reach, but we can't reach it. I wrote from your I know. I know. I know. But um, one, of the things, one of the things we learn is we should emulate God. And just like God contradicts himself, and you, you know, it takes time to figure out how to resolve his contradictions, so too good teachers contradict themselves mm-hmm. from class to class. Um, <laughs> Wait, why can't you say that Tara is a genius, though? I could. That's oh. also Maki. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it doesn't help you. Like, no. Okay. So, now the issue that the Altar of Fields needs explaining in this verse is that it says in your heart. The idea being is within your reach to have Judaism within your heart. And this is not at all obvious. Because if I were to tell you to do a mitzvah, Presuming that you had learned the appropriate halachas regarding the mitzvah, right? And you had the relevant mitzvah items or it was a proper time for the mitzvah. You could just decide to do the mitzvah, right? You can just decide to light the candles, Arab Shabbos. You can just decide to put on tefillin, right? Whatever the mitzvah might be, right? Same thing if it's a verbal mitzvah, right? You can just decide to make a bracha. You can just decide not to speak Lashon or speak ill of another person. And even mitzvahs of thought... Um, there are things you can just decide to do. If you're supposed to think about something, you can just decide to focus and think about it. And if you're supposed to not think about something, you decide to think about something else. And then when you think about something else, you're not thinking about the thing you're not supposed to think about. What are things that you're not allowed to think about in Judaism? Anyone know? What are you not allowed to think about? Inappropriate relationships. What? Inappropriate relationships. What else? There's other stuff. What? You're not allowed to think things that are heretical. So anything that goes against like belief in God, the Torah. You're not allowed to think negative thoughts, hateful thoughts, jealous thoughts of another Jew. What else? Thoughts of murder. Um, it doesn't actually say explicitly thoughts of murder. The the thoughts of the, the thoughts of hatred that might like lead you to murder. You're not allowed. You're not allowed to think ill of another Jew. Sit there. There's a mitzvah that people don't know about. You're not allowed to think things that cause you to be afraid during war. Oh, wow. I thought that's for the soldiers. It is for the soldiers. They can't fight a war if they're afraid. It's a prohibition of the soldiers to think things that make them afraid. To think about things that make you afraid? Hmm? So many years ago in the women's class, I was speaking about something in the women's program. I was speaking a, a, a different topic, and I brought this up. Um, and I explained that the way they train soldiers is to focus on what 
their task is and only on their task and not on anything else. Um, to the point that like, even if like you have a unit of three people entering a room and each person's covering one third of the room, as long as the other two members of your team are alive, if you don't you completely ignore what's not in your third of the room, even if you see something dangerous there because it's not your job. And people objected that this was unreasonable. And one of the women um, had previously been in the IDF as a combat soldier. And she said, no, that's actually how you train soldiers. Like, that, that really is things. You focus on the thing that you're supposed to be focusing on. Okay. Now, from a perspective of Judaism, you add to that the fact that Hashem um, is on our side and things like that. But yeah, there's, there's, just like there's prohibition of thinking things that are immodest, there's prohibition of thinking things that are hateful about other Jews, there's thinking, prohibition of thinking things that are heretical, there's also prohibition of the soldiers thinking things that will cause them to feel fear. I don't know if the mitzvah applies, but it's probably still good advice. But everything, everything, well, everything but the, everything, yeah, everything. Everything but the soldiers kind of derives from the Bismillah, like from the from destruction of Bismillah. But you know, no, it's a separate mitzvah. It's not. No, but I'm saying, I'm saying, like, was it rabbinical? It's a biblical mitzvah. mitzvah. It's a biblical. No, but why? Why was it a step? Was, was there a war that soldiers were, were like? It's just yeah, a, we've been fighting wars since no, the beginning. No, but I'm saying, like, was there a war specific, like specific war that was like? No, it says it's said it's in the chumash. It's in the chumash. It's a chumash that you're not allowed. They're not allowed to be afraid. And 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 the halacha is well, uh, you, how do you not to be afraid? Yeah. Don't think thoughts that make you afraid. So, but the point is, those are all things that you actually have what's called in psychology, volitional control. You can just decide and then you do it. But now, can you just decide to like somebody? You see, the, this is the altruist point. We're commanded to love God. So I'm mean, right now. Love him. It's like, what am I supposed to do? Right now, take joy in the mitzvah. See, that's not really, that's not, no. That's that's exactly the, the not the approach Elterba wants to take. I'll give you I'll give you an example. So imagine that there's somebody you don't like, right? But you're supposed to like them, right? So you find all sorts of like things that are likable about them, but these things are all superficial. superficial. Not really anything to do with them, right? So what have you done? You've dehumanized them and turned them into a caricature of themselves and found that caricature, that caricature likable. How, well, how far is that going to go in developing a close relationship with that person? <laughs> right? You, you, uh, you, uh, just like on a, on, a, on a human level, if you want to think positively about somebody, you have to, in a way that actually fosters real feelings of closeness, you have to think positively about them in such a way that if they knew that that's how you thought about them, they would feel positive about that. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's actually why a lot, of, a lot of people who are celebrities feel very lonely. Right, right. And, and, and they feel like, like nobody actually, like, like they feel like what people like isn't them, so. God feels that way. That's right. How do you think God feels when you praise him for creating the world? 
Ah, so Chassidus actually has a whole discussion about this. Like, why would we do that? It, it, but I'm just bringing up the question is legitimate. Okay, so I'll just like, how are you just supposed to like just decide to to have a sense of of trust in Hashem, a sense of faith in Hashem, a sense of joy, a sense of fear? Like you don't just, like those things are not so obviously just volitional control over them. And yet it says that it's carved, it's close, even in your heart. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Alter Rebbe answers this question. And the answer very simply is as follows. He has two answers. The first answer goes like this. The first answer is you have a godly soul. A godly soul is capable of being aware of God in a real way. And the godly soul is capable of feeling genuine emotions towards God. And when the godly soul is aware of God, it feels those emotions. And so all you have to do is practice being aware of God properly, genuinely, and your godly soul's capacity to be aware of God in a real way will elicit genuine feelings of love of God, genuine feelings of fear of God, etc. at least in as much as they motivate you to do Torah and mitzvahs. Because there are degrees of emotion and it does say in the verse, in your heart to do it, meaning that what's, what's within your reach is at least the, uh, the, the feelings that bring enthusiasm and a sense of personal engagement into the practice of Judaism. But not necessarily the types of feelings of love and fear of God that actually transform you into a holy person. And so he spends a lot of time explaining the difference between those things. Holy people only feel emotions towards God. So what happens if a holy person is stuck on a desert island? Does he feel sad? No. He does. What? What? Do you feel yourself where? What? On a deserted island. He feels sad. Well, towards God. Why wouldn't he feel sad? Because he can't do a minion. There's no minion. No tefillin. So why? A holy person. If a non-holy person is stuck on a desert island, why would they feel sad? Because they're alone, they don't have Netflix, I don't know, like other things make you feel sad. The Rebbe's father was, uh, was sent on a train into exile in Soviet Russia. Um, and uh, they were on the train for a few days. And like after like two, three days, they, they gave them water. Like, like two days. They, didn't have, they were just packed on the train and sent to like somewhere in um, the middle of nowhere in southern Russia. And um, so he wrote to his wife that it was a very, very difficult journey. But after, after two days or so, they gave us water. And I was so happy because I could finally wash Negovasser. Wow. He got like this little much water. And what did he do with it? <laughs> he poured it over his hands to remove the impurity. <laughs> um, but he was a holy person. Not, and the altar is very clear that, that there's different dynamics necessary to bring about feelings that transform you into a holy person, what he calls a tzaddik, to somebody who their relationship with Hashem is the most important thing to them, but they're not a holy person, what he calls a benini. And as long as a person maintains that awareness of God, which is not an easy thing to do, but it is something that's in your reach, um, 
the feelings of love, the feelings of fear, the feelings of devotion, dedication, are we present enough to not just get you to not sin and do the things you're supposed to do, but to feel that personally invested in those things? Can I ask a question? Yes. Um, it might be like a little bit, I don't know, really, maybe related more to like the project. A lot of people like, but then why can we, if we cannot really, like, if we understand that this is a different level, from, from us, because mm. obviously, um, how come we can actually take upon ourselves like a likely a lot of humors that we um, like? I'll take for instance, like there's a humor that um, you like the likely is that you cannot wear shutness, right? But like the humor is that you cannot also use any like you cannot sit on the chair that you're not sure if it, like if it's the you know the, the mixture of like wool and linen and whatever um just because a lot of tzaddikim like wouldn't because it's also like it's also the like mice about the um the father of Hazanish who was in the imperial russia whatever was was standing for three days in the train because he didn't know that like he didn't, he didn't know if the seat was shut or not, like if we're taking and a lot of people are taking a lot of um, humors like this, are they like I don't know? <laughs> is it the same problem as like Nazir, or is it like can we actually do that, or it doesn't it doesn't make sense for us to do that if we're like not pretending to be on, on this level, but if we're taking a lot of humors on ourselves? I think you're mixing up a few different things. Mm-hmm. Okay. The first thing is, you mentioned something called a chumrah. Okay. Yeah. A chumrah is when there's a lachic dispute about whether something is required or allowed, whatever the case mm-hmm. might be. And the general halachic view is to be more lenient, that it's whatever is not required or yeah. that the thing is allowed. And the question is, is it appropriate for a person to be stringent and follow the more stringent ruling? Um, then there's something else, which is a person wants to do a mitzvah in the best possible way. It's a different idea. Then there's a person has a certain relationship with Torah and mitzvahs that is entirely subjective, and you can't imitate that. And there's no point of imitating that. Rabbi Levi Yitzchavaditshev, one of the Altar's friends, of Chassidic Rebbe, he waited up all night to shake the Lulav and Esrug, and he got so excited, he grabbed the Lulav, he grabbed Esrug as, as, the, you know, as the sun was rising, and he shook the Lulav and Esrug, and afterwards he realized that his left hand was bleeding because the Esrug was in a glass case, and in his excitement he forgot and grabbed the Esrug through the case and didn't notice until he was done with the mitzvah. Like, I mean, like, if you feel certain ways, you feel certain ways. Like, there's nothing to imitate, right? Someone who really feels that afraid of shatanis can't... I, I would imagine, I don't know that particular story, but I would imagine that someone who's been sat sitting for three days on, on the seat because he's afraid of violating the prohibition of shatanis is because he's actually afraid. Mm-hmm. It's not because he's, like, trying to be extra biased. No, 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 yeah, yeah. Now, there's, there's, there's... Now, the, if you question, should you be stringent? The general rule is one should not do stringencies that are not the communal norm. That, that's, like, the status assumption um, if one wants to do a mitzvah in a more beautiful way um, then that's certainly an appropriate thing but one should check that they're not coming at the expense of other more basic things along the way mm-hmm. the common example is that there's a you know estrogen can range in price yes I'm here for, you're familiar with this an estrogen can go be very cheap or very expensive yeah. so um, 
it's very nice that a person wants to buy a very expensive asterisk, but it's also a mitzvah to make sure that your wife has like something nice for Yom Tov. And if you spend all your money on a nice asterisk and don't have any money left for your wife, you're beautifying one mitzvah at the expense of doing another mitzvah, which is not exactly how you're supposed to do it. So, but there's nothing to do with, the, with, with, being, with being holy. Because even if you're really afraid of sin, it doesn't mean that you're holy. Sometimes some emotions overcome other emotions. What the way Alter Rebbe describes it is that there's something that's transformed in the person, that the experiences of the soul are of a different kind of an experience that they actually change. The person, someone who's someone who's like this, doesn't get hungry on Yom Kippur not because they're so enthralled in the prayers and the contemplation and and what Yom Kippur is about. It's just like they physically can't be hungry on Yom Kippur. Their soul senses it's not a day of eating. And that shuts down, like, the senses of hunger. It, it's just like, that's what, like that, that would be a holy person. Yeah, that, okay. So, for instance, on the altar quotes the Gemara that Hillel said, um, and even when they're hungry, it's more like you, it's like when you're driving a car and you realize that the gas is low, you need to go fill up the gas. Like, you're not emotionally invested in, like, the gas tank being full, right? So when Hillel, the great sage Hillel, needed to eat, um, after class, he would tell his students that he's going to go do kindness with that decrepit creature. It's a very different thing. In other words, that your entire emotional life, without, not because you're deeply invested in focusing on it, just that's where it is oriented entirely around your soul's relationship with God and everything else is just the medium for that. That's a very different thing than someone who the most important thing in their life that they're prioritizing is God because they're focusing on being so aware of him. They're not the same thing. And it is not the case that it's so obvious to tell the difference between the two. Um, Now, the trick is, though, this awareness of God is not a simple thing to achieve. Um, The awareness of God has three basic steps, um, which are the three intellectual powers of the soul known as Chachma, Bina, and Das. I will give you now a brief summary of what they are. And I'll do them in the context um, of how they play out in the, what's, what we would call the rational soul of a human being. It was just the regular human psyche. And then I will talk about what they mean in the context of the godly soul. Because the godly soul is a different, is a different thing altogether. It's, it's, it's like a parallel. Okay, so Chachma is the capacity that you have as a person to... Be aware that certain things are true and important. This is what causes you to engage with them to begin with. So this happens before you understand them. Right? So for instance, when you are really curious about something, you sense that there is something to understand there. There's something important there. There's something... Right? You wouldn't be curious about something that you thought made no sense. You'd be curious about something you thought was unimportant. You'd be curious about something that you thought was stupid, right? But yet, if you're curious, do you yet understand it? Do you even know what it is? So there's a sense of, of openness, but not a kind of like a haphazard, casual openness. A, a very kind of devoted openness that gives a person an awareness um, of things. And that's where we first get our, our, our insights from. Bina is the ability of understanding things, that they actually make sense to you. Okay? 
um, this is like, you know, w- when you were in uh, middle school and they told you like compare and contrast, like analyze, summarize, right? All that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Bina is that ability that you can take it apart and put it back together. You will now have ma- intellectual mastery over it. Okay. A good way to test for Bina is can you talk about it in your own words without becoming completely incoherent and nonsensical? And then das. What is das? I'll throw this one out there. Anyone know what das is? Connection. I mean, das doesn't. Yes, he doesn't. What does that mean? Do you mean it more integration? Like, can you build onto it? And... Das facilitates. I don't know what das actually is. Das is not. Okay. Das is the fact that is is the is is the sense that this is actually the way your reality is. I will give you an example of das, okay? Yesterday, a missile hit in Beitar Elite. I live in Beitar Elite. Now, it a kilometer from my house. Now, when you see that a missile lands a kilometer from your house, what do you realize? What do you now know? Missiles can act. <laughs> it's not like any real, right? Now, very often our sense of that is not necessarily intellectual. It's through, it's, it's through and that's not really the kind of DAS we're talking about. The DAS we're talking about is, the, is, is kind of the process of intellectualization and maturation. So this is like, for instance, um, I'm sure many of you went through this where you started to realize that like money is not for extra stuff. Money is for basic things. You get to that point? Like, you know, when you're a kid, like, like money is like the thing that you use to buy candy and to go on trips, right? Money's not the thing that like keeps electricity going and like your bills paid and the fact that like, you know, but like we say, no, no, everything depends on money. No money, no anything. What happens when that starts to sink in? When you start to realize that that's how reality works. What becomes very important to you? Right, and so what ends up being das is. If you don't have money, you don't have like you don't have the basic like it's more about like like the off, like from the opposite like if you don't have that. Yeah, so what ends up happening is now a person now a person's whole like inner life ends up revolving around money, yeah. which is how most people live, whether they like to admit it or not. This is why in, in many areas of halacha, even if a child is very smart, they can't engage in certain types of business transactions. Why? Because they don't get it. Right, they're nice. So das is the thing that you, the, the way the Hebrew expression, the, the, the Hebrew expression that's found in Chassidus is that um, das is that a person knows that this is the way it is. Right. Um, and the way you can kind of tell when a person has das is that there's really nobody to argue with anymore. Now, if you just are if you just are very open to something and you understand it very well, you can go and live your life completely at odds with that. Okay. So das is the is the things that we know that serve as the base of how we live our lives, and so it becomes the basis of the emotions. That's not an emotion. 
but it's not like you're gaining new information. Okay? And that comes from being very connected to something. It works two ways. In other words, when you really get something, you become very obsessed about it. And when you become very obsessed about something, you start to get it in, in, in a deeper way. Is the ideal over the I didn't talk about Amuna intentionally. Not going to talk about it right now. So now. So das is the basis of the emotions. Das is the basis of the emotions. The way it's put in the Zohar is that das is the key to the six because there are six emotions in Kabbalah. So now, what does it mean that your godly soul has these three abilities? Your godly soul has the ability to be, to have chachma. What does chachma mean? To have a sense of God that starts off as this kind of openness and curiosity and devotion to God and ends up with kind of a concept of God. Just like in real life, just like in a regular human life, right? When, you, when you're really interested and open and curious about something, what happens? Conceptions of that thing, of how that thing actually would be, pop into your mind. And then what's Bina? Bina is that your godly soul can actually make sense of God. And Das is that your godly soul has a sense that God, that however it made sense of God, that's actually the way it really is. And then when that happens, consequently the person is going to feel emotions towards God. This is very hard. Most, the Alter Rebbe says most people can do this. The Alter Rebbe's version of most people is a kind of cons- idealized version of most people. Okay. I'm going to do a little exercise to illustrate how hard this is. Okay? I'd like everyone to close their eyes. And I'd like everyone to think about a tree. And what do you think with as much detail as you can? Okay. Now, you can open up your eyes. Show of hands. How many people thought only about a tree? Okay, of the people who only thought about a tree, how many people can tell me what color the trees, what color the tree was? It's leaves. Dark green. Dark green. How many people? What? Yours barely had leaves. Okay. How many people can tell me? whether the root system of the tree was broad or deep. I didn't see that. What? Yes. You didn't even think it. They can't even see the roots. I don't count. Okay. Okay. How many people, can, how many people, how many people consider the role that the tree plays in maintaining the availability of oxygen for the rest of the ecosystem? That far. One second, let me ask you a question. You didn't no. get that far or you weren't even going in that direction? Well, that, was, that wasn't the question. Was, the, like, what, it was, what did I ask? Think what did I say? Think about a tree. And everyone in, the one second, everyone interpreted that without me saying so as picture a tree. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the first thing you have to get past because if your mental life involves pictures and images... God is not in the form of images. You have to learn to think deeply in terms of abstractions. Seeing a problem here? Okay, so we're going to shift. I would like you now to 
think deeply about the concept of freedom and how it interacts with the notion of privacy. Four consoles. You see the down like what? Like, what, are the, what are we, right? Okay. But so now, what are, now I would like you to think of right. You see the problem? Like, there's a whole skill of learning how to do this, and then, and and base and and then. To, to then shift to, you know, think about the greatness of God. You can't really teach this. You can. It's very, very hard. And there's a, it, but it's, it, it is, it is what I like to call, it is a, it's a discipline, right? And um, do most people have the ability to do it? The most, do most Jews have the ability to do this? Yes. In the same way, most people have the ability to run a marathon. I mean that, I'm not exaggerating. Most people, if, assuming that their legs work, right, and they're not suffering from some serious heart condition, with the right training, can run a marathon, right? I didn't say that they're going to win world records, but they can do it. Okay. As the Altebbe says, um, and, I, and I quote at the end of chapter um, 17, this is easy for any person who has a brain in his skull because one's intellectual life is within their control. And wanting to contemplate on anything one desires. And when one contemplates, they'll at least in their mind generate a sense of love and desire to cleave to Hashem. Now, that, you know, so on a conceptual level, that's true that most people can do that. Um, practically speaking, though. Okay. And so the Alter Reb, you really have to work that muscle. In fact, in, in, in the Hasidic tradition in Chabad, people who started, who wanted to learn how to do this, sometimes they would be trained to contemplate Talmud first. Because Talmud is more concrete. Okay, now how do you train to contemplate Talmud? You learn from the Okay, so yeah, so 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 the way the way Talmud works is like a discussion. Okay, so I'll I'll just illustrate this. So um, there's a teaching in the Mishnah that says that if someone deposited for safekeeping with another person some utensils or an animal, and they were lost or stolen. I, I'm aware of that, and the and the and the custodian swears um, that they weren't negligent because they have that right to swear and exempt themselves. And then subsequently, the thief was found, or if it was slaughtered or sold, the animal, or sorry, the the, the thief pays double. If it was slaughtered or sold, the thief pays four or five times the amount. Sorry, that's if if, if he pay, if he chooses to pay. But if he choose, chooses to swear and exempt himself then the double or five times penalty goes to the original owner. And the Talmud asks, why do you need to use two examples of an animal or utensils? Right? One example should be sufficient. And the Talmud answers that from each of these examples, one can reach a mistaken conclusion. If they only used the example of utensils, I would have thought that the owner conveys the rights to the double penalty payments only under conditions where it's a maximum of double as opposed to animals, which could reach a four or five times penalty payment, he's unwilling to forego such a, an extent of money. Conversely, if it only taught that this is, happens in the case of animals, you think, they have to do that you think it only applies to animals because 
but not utensils because it would hurt taking care of animals is a lot of work and the owner feels a certain sense of gratitude that he wouldn't feel for just washing a utensil. Therefore, to avoid both of these mistakes, the, Tom, the mission needs you to use both of these things. Now, what's clear from this answer is that the custodian getting the penalty payments is because the owner has somehow conveyed the right to those penalty payments. And this itself is difficult because you have a general principle in Jewish law. You cannot convey ownership of things that do not yet exist. And even if we're following the minority view of Rabbi Mayer, who says that you can convey the ownership of things that don't yet exist, that's limited to things that are naturally going to come about, like the, the, the dates from a palm tree, which even though the dates haven't grown yet, but they're going to grow. But here, who is to say that the cow is going to be stolen and who is to say that the thief is going to be found? And even if the thief is found, who's going to say he has to pay the penalty payments because he may admit his guilt before being sentenced and thus absolving himself of the obligation to pay. This is what the Talmud is, right? Okay, you understand? It's a train of thought. Okay. So the first step was to close your eyes and do that in your head. Like, and, and just make do point by point and explain it clearly so that if someone hadn't learned it, they would understand what you were saying in your own head without letting your mind wander. And when you can do that well, then you move to like things that are explained in Hasidic discourses. And then you do that well, you move up and up and up. And in theory, if you work on this and you sensitize yourself and train yourself and there's a whole thing around it, you can get to a point that, yeah, your, your intel, inner intellectual life becomes anchored in a very concrete, tangible awareness of God, despite the fact that God is very abstract, that is not fluffy and, for, and frankly not spiritual in the sense that most people think so that your emotional life becomes anchored there. And at that point, sinning is out of the question. Mitzvahs are a given. And you feel, at least on some level, deeply invested in those things. Now, does that mean you're holy? No, you still can feel like, you know, negative, you know, unholy things as well. So that's, you know, not for everybody, right? On a practical level. And the Alter Abbas points out that the verse says it's very close. So he then starts in chapter 18, a different approach. A different approach for having Judaism, not just on, a, on the practical behavior level, but even on the emotional level, that does not involve contemplating the greatness of God in, in the manner I just described. Is it lower level? There's a general with Hasidus. Everything which is lower is really Higher. So here's the rule. If it's something that lower people can use, it touches on a deeper truth. If it's something that's more exclusive or elitist, it's actually coming from a lower level. Then you think, well, then why even bother having the more elitist thing, right? Because yeah. the, so the, the, the elitist thing is objectively more higher. It's just rooted in a lower thing. Well, think about just a simple example, like my interactions with you versus my interactions with my um, infant son. Which ones are um, more engaging? No. He's four. More engaging. Like, I can't spend an hour and 15 minutes with my four-month-old son, like actually like mentally engage with him. I would go crazy. Right? But it's, it, 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 it's rooted in a deeper place in my life. Right. So you have to start thinking things in more than one parameter. So the second way, which we're going to start talking about, which starts in chapter 18, um, that way is rooted in a deeper truth of the soul and a deeper truth of God, but it is objectively speaking a lower level of service of God. 
It accomplishes less, but it's also more available and so more usable, more user-friendly. So later on time, Rabbi tries to describe how one should strive to serve God. He doesn't even mention this approach. But when he talks about like what's, what's certainly within everybody's reach, he does talk about this approach. Okay. Um, those Hasidic discourses you're learning in the morning, they're really meant, for, the original ideal purpose of them is for guides to contemplation. So the traditional way was the person, they were studied and studied and studied to the point that the person knew them more or less by heart, not necessarily verbatim, and then they would contemplate them. And the same one for extended periods of time on a regular basis, daily, weekly basis, for months or years on end until it would start to change their sense of life. Which you could still do, which just it's an investment, you know, it's not a... So if you ever see those pictures of like the old chassid, like in the talus, like sitting there davening, that's in theory what they're supposed to be doing. <laughs> yeah, it could be they're napping, you never know. <laughs> talus goes over there. All right, tomorrow is Wednesday, so we'll have questions and answers. Um, and then Bez Hashem, next Monday, I will give a more detailed summary of chapters 18 and 19 because they really set the stage for chapter 20. This second approach is from chapters 18 through 25. Um, so we really need to have more details about you know, 18 and 19 before we go forward to chapter 20. But I don't want to spend the whole class on just the introduction. I want to actually start the chapter. Thank you. All right.